I was uh, bringing the bin in a few days ago and uh, a lady who lives up the street who I'd never met before came out and she said, I want to introduce myself, Craig. I've been listening to your podcasts for a while and, uh, and, she, and she said lots of nice things. And then she said, yeah, and two Saturday nights ago I was listening to you in the car and I had a car accident. And... <laughs> Which uh, I was like, oh goodness, right? And uh, I said, what sermon was it? And she couldn't remember, uh, so it must have been memorable. And, uh, and, and she said, and so we were chatting about that, and she said, but then the policeman came along, and he looked at my car, and, uh, and he said, I've never seen somebody get out of a car that damaged without a scrape on them before. And so that kind of brought me up a little bit, you know, that there's just a special anointing of protection when you listen to my podcast. Uh, but it sort of touches on what we're thinking about today, that... That why, when you're doing the right thing, like listen to a sermon, do bad things happen? And then, well, in the midst of that, then something good happens. How do we respond to that in life when, when something good happens, when, we're trying to, uh, when people are doing bad things, and when something bad happens when you're trying to do the right thing? We're thinking about really expectations. Expectations about life. Expectations about people. Expectations about relationships, expectations about your work, expectations about God. What happens when our expectations aren't met? Or what happens when they're not met in the way or in the time that we think they should be? What do we do then? One of the things that I love about the internet is uh, reading reviews. I kind of am addicted to reviews. And uh, I, I just, I love being able to find out what people's experiences were um, before I, I buy something. You know, you go on Amazon and you, you find out what people thought of the book, how many stars they gave it out of five, or what they thought of those headphones or that laptop or that electric toothbrush. And you read the reviews, or you go on TripAdvisor and you read the reviews of hotels. You know, when I was a kid, there was these things called travel agents and, and you, you got a brochure or your mum brought home like 72 brochures and you flicked your way through them and you looked at the pictures and you went back then and you booked the holiday and all you had was this one or two pictures which were probably the only two nice angles of the hotel while there was raw sewage flowing through the rest of it. But that's kind of all you had to go on, where now you can go on TripAdvisor and you can read all about it before you go. And I only really read two types of reviews, the five stars and the one stars. Like if five stars, I want to know all the good things about it. And the one stars, I want to know what was so bad about that place. And there's normally that, you know what, you've got 99 five-star reviews and that one person who gives it a one star. And you know that every single thing in their life they have given a one star to. That they're just a miserable, grumpy person who will look for, for that one thing that's wrong. Because uh, how could 99 people have found it incredible and delightful and the, and the staff to be friendly and this one person? person thought it was as close to hell as you will ever find on earth. And so I love reading reviews, but not everything has a review. You see, reviews give you expectations. When I read the reviews, I know what to expect when I get there. When I read the reviews, I, I know what the book is probably going to be like or what that electric toothbrush that I keep going back to is going to be like. But there's some things that you don't get reviews about, like marriage. 
you know, you can't go, you know, uh, potentialwives.com and read, re- you know, I couldn't do that 13 years ago and read reviews about Becky Fletcher, um, you know, and uh, see how many people had given her five-star reviews um, for her character and her cooking. Um, you know, you can't really do that with friends, you know, uh, you know, faithfulfriend.com, you know, find ratings for loyalty, timekeeping, dependability and trustworthiness. You can't really do it for kids. You know, it would be lovely if before your kids arrived, you were able to see how they were going to turn out, you know. And, you know, you know, the review says they're nice when they're young, but then they become a terror later on. Uh, our, our, our job, you know, how many stars for a job satisfaction, your work environment, the quality of your co-workers. Wouldn't it be lovely if before you applied for a job? And I know some places are starting, you can do this in some places in the States right now, but yet you were able to read all about what it's like from 30 people who work there. What, what's the environment like? What's the culture like? And what about your faith? You can't really read reviews about your faith. You know, God.com, where there's reviews of heaven. You know, somebody gives it four stars. I like the golden streets, but the pearly gates could do with a polish. Uh, you know, you can't really... There's a lot of things that, that we, we can't read reviews about. And therefore, we have expectations about, but we don't know if those expectations will be met. There's some things you've got to be experienced for yourself. And ultimately, only you will experience it and go through it in your own way, no matter what anybody else thinks about it. And there's some things in life that will meet your your expectations, and that's really good. And there's even some things in life that will exceed your expectations, that you thought it would be here, and it would be here. But then there's other things in life that unfortunately won't meet your expectations. That your expectation will be here, And your experience will be here. And that gap, that space between your expectation and your experience gets filled with things. It gets filled with disappointment. It gets filled with maybe disillusionment. It gets filled with discouragement. And gets filled with doubt. And when you really think about it, that's what disappointment is. It's, It's unmet expectations. If you didn't have expectations about something, you wouldn't be disappointed. Disappointment only comes because you have expectations. If you didn't have expectations about a relationship, about marriage, about church, about kids, about God, about life, then you wouldn't be disappointed. Even your expectations of yourself. Sometimes that's the biggest area of disappointment for us. That we have expectations of ourselves that we will be a certain type of person or that we will achieve something. And I, I, I talk to people all the time and I'll say something, things like, I thought I'd be further along than now, by now. I thought I'd be doing better in my job by now. I, I thought I'd be, uh, I'd, I'd be at a higher level in my company by now. I thought I'd have overcome this issue by now. And, and, and you know, like when I was younger, I'd done a lot of kids' work and I'd done a lot of youth work, so I always thought, that being a dad would be really easy for me. And, and so I had this expectation that I would be super dad. And then Elijah came along, and for the first three years, I was quite disappointed in myself because I found being a dad really, 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 really hard. Like, like much harder than I thought it would be. I thought I would be this amazing dad, and, and I found it really hard to be a dad. And, and so I had this expectation that I would be this kind of dad, but... In reality, my experience was here, and that gap got filled with guilt and disappointment and, 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 and sadness and, and, and just this sense of, 
of, of, of not being all that I should be. Sometimes it comes from comparison. We compare our lives to others. You know, we, we're still following Jill on Facebook, who we went to junior high with, and she seems to be doing amazing things while you're not. Or James, who's just, you know, going from glory to glory and strength to strength and traveling the world, and, and, and you're just doing your nine to five. And, and, and you don't even care about James and Julie or Jill or any of them anymore, but you still, you look at their life and look at yours and you feel disappointed. What do we do with those disappointments? Because they're going to happen. What do we do when our... Our own expectation is here, but our experience is here. Well, some people, what we do is we push them down. We just try to ignore them. We pretend they're not there. We push them down. And actually, that just leads to a sadness in our lives. And what that can lead to is us, us lowering our expectations. You know, you hear people say like, things like, I don't expect much because I'm not going to help I'll not be disappointed. And, and, and that, sometimes we do that, don't we? You know, uh, if I, if, if, if I lower the bar of my life so low, that way I'm not going to live with disappointment. But you actually will because deep down you know you were made for more. The way some other people deal with it, instead of pushing it down, they let it out. They're disappointed in life and they take it out in other people. They get angry and, and they're frustrated constantly and they don't know why. And it's because they haven't met their expectations. They're disappointed. What do we do? Is there another way? That's what we're going to think about today. We're going to look at Matthew 11 and see how one man's experience fell short of his expectations and what he did with it. Look at verses 1 to 3 with me. After Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in the towns of Galilee. When John, who was in prison, heard about the deeds of the Messiah, he sent his disciples to ask him, are you the one who is to come or should we expect someone else this is about two years into jesus public ministry he's just sent the disciples out to do the stuff that he's been doing he's on his own he's still teaching and preaching and in the midst of this the disciples of john the baptist come to him john the baptist some of you will know was jesus crazy cousin he we meet him he's out in the wilderness he's eating locusts and wild honey he's dressed in in animal skin and he's got a message which is repent for the kingdom of heaven is near and crowds are streaming to him they're confessing their sins they're being baptized in the jordan and he's becoming more and more famous he's gathering disciples around him and he's kind of become a local celebrity but he knows that his job is just to prepare the way. He sees himself as a messenger, as a forerunner, as a preparer for the Messiah. In John 1, some of the Jewish leaders come to John and they're trying to figure out who he is and what he's about and, 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 and what his deal is. And look at what John says in John 1.23. John replied, using the words of Isaiah the prophet, I am the voice of one calling in the wilderness. Make straight the way for the Lord. He says, it's not about me, it's about the one coming after me. I'm a nobody, I'm just a voice, I'm just the announcer who's declaring that the Messiah is coming. And then look what he says in John 1, 26, 27. He says, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know. He is the one who comes after me, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He says, you think I'm a big deal? You think I'm some sort of celebrity? You have no idea. I'm a nobody compared to the one who's coming. I'm simply preparing the way for the Messiah. And then look at the next verse, verse 29. 
the next day, John saw Jesus coming towards him. And he said, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He's been talking about Jesus. He's been saying, I'm just a voice. I'm just a messenger pointing to the Messiah. And Jesus comes along. He says, there's the one. He's the one. That's the one I've been talking about. That's the one I've been telling you about. He is the Messiah. He's the one I've been preparing the way for. He's so sure. He's so certain. He's complete confidence and conviction. Jesus is the Messiah. He has no doubt about it. That was two years ago. Fast forward two years. Look at what he asks now. Again, Matthew 11, 2 and 3. When John, who was in prison, heard about the deeds of the Messiah, he sent his disciples to ask him, are you the one who is to come? Or should we expect someone else? Two years ago, he looked at him and said, he's the one, you're the one. And now two years later, he's asking, are you the one? Or, Or should we expect someone else? He's the one. Are you the one? What has happened to all his certainty? What has happened to all his confidence? What has happened to all his conviction? What has happened in between? He was once so sure of it, but now he's not as clear as he used to be. What has caused John to doubt? Well, it takes us back to where we started. In the past two years, this gap has developed between what John expected from Jesus What John expected from the Messiah and his current reality, his current experience of life. Look at verse 2 again. When life falls below expectations. Verse 2. When John, who was in prison, heard about the deeds of the Messiah. Two years ago, John was the one that everyone went to see. He was the celebrity. He was the famous one. He was the popular one. He was the main preacher in town. And now two years later, he's rotting in a prison cell. He's been in prison for a year. And while he's in prison, Jesus has got more popular. Why is he in prison? Well, it tells us in Mark 6. He's in prison for doing the right thing. You see, the king in Galilee at that time was a guy called Herod, okay? There were a number of Herods. This was, this was what, uh, Herod Antipas, his name was. And Herod, the king of Galilee, had gone to stay with his brother in Rome. And he had taken a bit of a fancy for his brother's wife. He had seduced her. And she, she said, I want to come back with you. But before I come back with you, you have to get rid of the wife you have. And so he comes back to Galilee, he divorces his wife, and he steals his brother's wife and brings her, her there. And everybody else is like, no problem, if it feels good, do it, no worries. And John the Baptist, bold, courageous, comes along and says, that is wrong, that is sin, you need to repent. And as you can imagine, John is not over the, or, or, or Herod is not over the moon about this. How dare anybody tell him he is wrong? And so he has John thrown into a dark dank prison cell that's how he ends up in jail not for sinning not for stealing not for selling drugs or snorting something but for doing nothing wrong except standing up for righteousness his life is being taken from him because he's done everything right it's one thing to end up in a mess when you make a mess when you do the wrong thing when you are stupid and foolish and 
sinful and lie and steal. And, but what happens when you do the right thing? What happens when you try to do everything right? What happens when you try to obey God? What happens when you try to be the best you can be and it still doesn't work out? What happens as a, as a young lady where you've tried to be pure? You've kept yourself from dating certain people. You've saved yourself because everybody tells you there's going to be the one. You're going to meet the one. And you're, you're keeping yourself and you're not dating these guys and work who are asking you out. And you're keeping yourself. And now you're 30, you're 35, you're 40. And all your friends are married and you're still single. And the last date you had was when Tony Blair was prime minister. What do you do at that point? Like, how do you deal with that? You've tried to do the right thing, and you're, fr- like, you're, 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 you're happy when your friends are engaged, but you're kind of a bit miserable as well. And you think, she's not as pretty as me, and she's a bit two-faced, and, you know, and, and she's getting married. What's wrong with me? Or when you do get married, and all your friends are having kids, And for you and your husband, it just doesn't seem to be working. What do you do? Or or when you've tried to live the Christian life and you've tried to be faithful to God in your workplace and everybody turns against you and you become the laughing stock of the cafeteria every break time. What do you do? What do you do when you've done everything right? When you've done what they say, go to university, Work hard, get a degree, get a job, provide for your family and you're 45 and you're made unemployed and you've applied for 33 jobs and you haven't even heard back from one of them. What do you do? And what makes it even harder is you keep seeing other people who aren't as good as you, who aren't as faithful as you, who seem to be doing better than you. That's how John feels. The context here for him asking the question is Jesus preaching and teaching in Galilee. Jesus is attracting the crowds now. Everything that John wants and everything that John used to have, Jesus now has. And he's struggling with it. While Jesus' ministry has been on the up and up, John has been going down and down into a cell. And that's hard. What happens when you're struggling financially and everyone else around you seems to be having their fifth holiday in three months. That's hard. When your health goes from one sickness to another, to another, to another, and the people around you never seem to even get a sniffle, that's hard. Bitterness can set in. Disappointment can set in. Discouragement can set in. I think a big problem is this, and I've said, I know I've said this many times to you, that we compare everybody else's highlights to our behind the scenes. We look at all the good stuff in everybody's life and we compare it to the worst bits of our life. And we get disappointed and we get discouraged. We see all the great things that are happening in their lives and all we can see is the rubbish that's happening in our own life. We don't see behind the scenes. We don't see the moments that they don't put on Facebook or Instagram. We don't see the fight that they've just had with their wife. We don't see that their marriage has fallen apart. We don't see that their kids are a mess. We don't see that, that they're deeply in debt, even though they're driving t- all those fancy cars. We don't see the heartache and the grief. All we see is the smiles. And we look at the smiles and we look at our own life and we think, there's something not right here. There's something not fair here. 
For John, it just hasn't turned out like he hoped. For John, life hasn't turned out like he planned. And there's this gap between what he expected from life and what he's experiencing. And he's wrestling with it, and he's trying to make sense of it. And that's why he sends his disciples to Jesus. But there's something else, I think, going on here. When God falls below expectations. I I noticed something almost accidentally when I was studying this. In Matthew 3, when John's preparing the way for Jesus two years before, he sets out what he expects from the Messiah. He tells him what he expects Jesus is going to do. Look at what he says. I baptize you with water for repentance, but after me comes one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Okay, so he was expecting fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear the threshing floor. That was to do with judgment. The winnowing fork was what you used to separate the chaff from the wheat. In other words, what he's saying is that there's going to be judgment. When the Messiah comes along, he's coming with fire, and he's coming with a fork, and he's going to get all the unrighteous, all the sinners, all the pagans, and he's going to take them, and he's going to throw them into the fire. Look at what he says, gathering his wheat into the barn and burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire. John was a a hellfire and brimstone preacher. And he said, when Jesus comes, you think I'm hellfire and brimstone? Just wait. Just you ain't seen nothing yet. You think I'm dangling you over the pits of hell? Just wait till the Messiah comes along. He expected Jesus to come with judgment and wrath. He expected a Messiah to ride in on a white horse and deliver the Jews from the Roman oppression. But then we get to him in prison. And what does it say again? When John, who was in prison, heard about the deeds of the Messiah, he sent his disciples to ask him, are you the one to come? Well, what were the deeds he had heard about? Do you see that? What were the deeds he had heard about the Messiah? What was Jesus doing? He was preaching. He was healing people. He was setting bad people free. He was hanging out with the wrong sorts of people, tax collectors and sinners. He was loving people, and he was bringing God's grace and restoration into their lives. This is not the Messiah John was expecting. Where's the fork? Where's the fire? It's not there. This is not what he was expecting. You see, it's one thing for people to fall short of your expectations. It's one thing even for yourself to fall short of your expectations. What about when God falls short of your expectations? When God seems to let you down? Sometimes we don't even want to admit that. But Jesus hasn't met John's expectations. And he's now having doubts. He was once so certain, but now he's not so sure. I told everyone that you were the one, and now I'm not sure that you are the one. You're not doing everything I thought you would do. Maybe you've been there. I think we've all been there. I know I have. There's times when I go, God, I, I, I've sacrificed, I've served, I've, I've given up jobs, and things haven't turned out like I hoped. I invested my life into these people, and they turned their backs on me, and they rejected me, and they hurt me. And, and I, I'm just trying to do my best, God, and I'm trying to serve you, and I'm trying to preach your word. And I'm just fed up, because I see all these other people who are just living their own life, who are living for themselves and they don't care about you, God. And they seem to be happier and they seem to be more prosperous and they don't seem to have any problems and they don't seem to be burnt out or depressed or sick. This is not how it was supposed to be. Maybe for you it's been 
where you've been praying and you, you know that God can heal and you tell people that God can heal and you've got a friend or a relative or a husband or a wife who's sick and you're praying your best prayers and nothing is happening and God, it seems, has failed you and let you down. Maybe you believe that God is a provider, Jehovah Jireh, and yet you seem to be getting deeper and deeper into this pit of death. Maybe you believe God can set me free, but you're still struggling every day with this addiction. This is not how it was supposed to be. And I think God would say a few things as I finish up here today. If you're disappointed or if you face disappointment, if your expectation hasn't been met by your experience, I think God would just say a few things. And the first one is this. Check your expectations. Check your expectations. You see, Jesus doesn't answer the disciples of John. He simply points to his deeds. He simply says, go back and tell John that the sick are being healed, the dead are being raised, the lepers are being cleansed, but blind eyes are being opened. You see, John's expectations of the Messiah came from the Old Testament. That's all he had to go on. Even his own ministry was prophesied by Isaiah. So he knew Isaiah back to front. And when he read Isaiah, he read chapters like 35. He read chapters like 61. And look at what it says in Isaiah 35. Strengthen the feeble hands, steady the knees that give way. Say to those with fearful hearts, be strong, do not fear, your God will come. He will come to you with vengeance. You see, he liked that bit. He read the vengeance bit there, okay? And he said, that's the Messiah who's coming. With divine retribution, he will come and save you. That's the bit that he read. But then he missed the next verse. Then the eyes of the blind will be opened and the ears of the deaf will be unstopped. And he read Isaiah 61. The spirit of the sovereign Lord is upon me, which Jesus in Luke 4 declares about himself. Because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives, and release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the the year for the Lord's favor. But here's the bit John liked. And the day of vengeance of our God. John liked that bit. You see, here's what Jesus is saying to him. Jesus is saying, I am fulfilling the scriptures. I'm just not fulfilling the precise scriptures that you want me to fulfill. You like the vengeance. You like the fire and the fork, and I'm coming with forgiveness. And there will be a day for the fire and the fork. And sometimes God will disappoint us because he doesn't do what we expect him to do in the time. You see, there will be a day when there will be judgment. But Jesus is saying, this is not it. Right now, this is a time for forgiveness. This is a time for freedom. This is a time for healing. This is a time for grace. This is a time for mercy. And that is not what John expected. And Jesus is saying, you know what? Just because I'm not doing what you expect doesn't mean I'm not who you thought I was. I am still the Messiah. Don't try and fit me into your box and say, this is what you are. He says, I'm breaking out of that box and I'm not doing what you expected, but your expectations are wrong. I'm not wrong. I'm fulfilling scriptures, just not your selected scriptures. And sometimes we need to ask ourselves when we're disappointed, why am I disappointed? What was my expectation that I'm now disappointed? And was it a was it a false expectation? When you're disappointed with God, you need to come back to the word of God and go, actually, does God promise me a, a, a pain-free life? <laughs> does God promise me that every single person I pray for will get better? 
Does God promise me that every, you know, that I'm going to live healthy and wealthy for the rest of my days? Is that what God's promises me? Because when you actually get down to the book, he, he, he promises you a lot of things, but he doesn't promise you an easy life. He doesn't promise you that everything's going to go perfect for you. He doesn't promise you that you'll never get sick. And there's times when we need to actually go back and ask ourselves, am I disappointed because I had false expectations? Even with people. When you're disappointed with people, did you have false expectations? Or did you put them on a pedestal? And I think sometimes God would just say, examine your expectations when you're disappointed. And that's what Jesus says. He says, I might not be fulfilling what you think I am, but I am fulfilling the word of God. And my job is not to be who you want me to be. My job is to fulfill what the Father has called me to do. The second thing I think God would say is this. Hold on to in the dark what God has shown you in the light. Hold on to in the dark what God has shown you in the light. See, John's whole life, he knew Jesus was the Messiah. His whole life. When he was in the womb, his mother, Elizabeth, goes to visit Mary, who's pregnant with Jesus. And when she walks into the room, John the Baptist leapt in the womb. Even before he was born, he knew there was something special about Jesus. When he's baptizing in the Jordan, Jesus comes along and is baptized by him. And he sees the heavens open and the Spirit descending like a dove on Jesus. And he hears the voice of the Father saying, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. John knew his whole life that Jesus was the Messiah. But now things don't seem to be working out the way he expected. He's beginning to have doubts. He's beginning to question what he was once so sure of. I think this can happen to many of us, especially if you've been a Christian for a long time or you've been brought up in a Christian home. That you've, this set of beliefs that you've inherited, this set of beliefs that you've believed for a long time, and nothing bad has ever really shaken you, and then something happens, and suddenly you start to doubt. You begin to question some of the things that you've always accepted. Where you ask yourself, do I really believe this because I believe it, or just because I've been told to believe it? And it's normally when we're disappointed. It's normally when things haven't worked out. And that can be a good thing to do here, especially when we do what John did. What does John do? John doesn't spend his life creating a doubt circle. He doesn't write a a book about all my doubts about Jesus. He goes straight to Jesus. He takes his doubts to Jesus. And he says, Jesus, I just need to know. And Jesus doesn't rebuke him. Jesus never rebukes him for his doubts. He takes his struggles to Jesus and Jesus never once says, tell John, how dare he even question me? Jesus simply says, look at the evidence. Look back over your life. Look back at who I've been. Look at my activities. Look at your experience of me up to this point and you decide for yourself. And I think God would say the same to us when we doubt. Just because things aren't going right in this moment right now, what about the last 10 years? What about the last 15 years? What about that time when you prayed and they did get better? What about that time when you were in a pit and I did lift you out? What about all the things I have saved you from? All the things I have rescued you from? That time when you had nothing and I provided for you? Why don't you look back at those things and make a decision? The things that I have shown you in the light, just because things are dark right now, don't let them go. Zoom out. 
and see the bigger picture of your life. Don't confine your faith experience to this one moment of darkness. And the third thing Jesus would say is this. You're doing better than you think you are. You're doing better than you think you are. Look at what Jesus says about John here in verses 7 to 11. As John's disciples were leaving, Jesus began to speak to the crowd about John. What did you go out to the wilderness to see? A reed swayed by the wind? If not, what did you go out to see? A man dressed in fine clothes? No, those who wear fine clothes are in king's palaces. Then what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, and I tell you more than a prophet. This is the one about whom it is written, I will send my messenger ahead of you to prepare the way before you. Truly I tell you, Listen to this. Among those born of women, there has not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. He reminds them about how significant John is, how important John is. He takes them back and he says, John is absolutely central to my purpose. He was preparing the way. He was a prophet. He was more than a prophet. Among those born of women, that covers a lot of people. I want you to think about this. John is rotting in a prison cell. He spent his whole life preparing the way for Jesus. And he's wondering if it was a waste of time. What's the point? He feels insignificant. Does it really matter? And Jesus says, you think your life didn't matter? It mattered so much more than you will ever know. You think it was wasted? Not one second of your life was wasted, John. You think because you're in prison that you're insignificant? John, you did exactly what you were called to do. You fulfilled God's purpose for your life. So don't allow what you see or where you are right now to cause you to doubt everything that God has done in your past. You are so much more significant than you think you are. Don't let this momentary Space of darkness and discouragement shape your whole view of your life and your past and your value. And some of you need to hear this this morning. Some of you are doing better than you think you are. Some of you are doing better than you think you are. I don't know if you're like me. I tend to see much more how far short I fall rather than how far I've come. Like, I look and I see all my inconsistencies and all the areas where I still struggle and all the places where I need to grow and how I'm not as good as some people at certain things. And I look out here and I see what I want to be and I see this gap and that's filled with disappointment. And I think God would sometimes say, yeah, you're not where you want to be, but look how far you've come. Look at what you were two years ago. Look at where you were five years ago. Look at where you were ten years ago. So instead of focusing on how far short you are, why don't you look actually at how far you've come? You're doing better than you think you are. You might think you're a rubbish mom or dad, but I want to tell you you're doing better than you think you are. You might think you're a rubbish Christian, but I want to tell you, look at where you were five years ago and look at where you are now. Yes, you may not be completely better. Yes, you may still struggle with some things, but look at where you were back then. You may not be the perfect husband or wife, but you're doing better than you were back then. And God, I think, sometimes would say to us, stop focusing on everything you're not and start looking at what I've actually done in your life. And finally, it's less about you than you think it is. It's less about you than you think it is. Talking about John, Jesus says this, this is the one about whom it's written, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before you. Jesus reminds John of his true purpose, that it was never about him. It was always about Jesus. And some of us need to know this, that it's not about you and it's not about me. Again, we need to zoom out. 
because our lives get very inward-looking and introspective and self-obsessed. And I think God would say to us, it is not about you. My purpose is greater. My plan is bigger than your life right now. It is not about your expectations. It is not about your plans. It is not about your happiness. It is not about your comfort. It is not about your convenience. It is about Jesus. Jesus is not there to serve my needs. I am there to serve his purposes. And when you say Jesus is Lord, that's fine when everything is going well. But what happens when it's not going well? Is he still Lord? See, it wasn't very long after this that John was executed by Herod. He actually had his head chopped off. And it wasn't long after that before Jesus was executed and was hung on a cross. And as Jesus hung on that cross, there was disappointment because the expectation of Jesus was here and as they watched him hanging on the cross, their experience was here. But little did they know that that place of disappointment would be filled by so much more, would be filled by resurrection, would be filled by life, would be filled by hope, would be filled by grace, would be filled by forgiveness. What didn't make sense made sense. What was so confusing was clear. What seemed to have no purpose was part of God's plan. And God would say there's some things in your life that don't make sense right now, but one day they will. Because Jesus, just before he went to the cross, he said this in John 13, 7. He said, you do not realize what I'm doing, but later you'll understand. And I think that could be written over so many of our lives at so many times. You do not realize right now what I'm doing, but one day you'll look back and you'll understand. And I want to finish with a, a story. It was about a mom. It's a true story. It was a mom. It was a a mom called Deborah, who had been so looking forward to having a child. And when she had a child, the child ended up uh, having special needs. And I just any parent with any child with special needs, raising any child is hard. Raising a child with special needs, I think, I just have so much respect and, and, and love for, for people who, who, who do that. But as Deborah's child reached her teenage years, it just became really hard for Deborah to watch her daughter. While other kids were learning to drive, she knew her daughter would never drive. While other kids were going to the, the formal, she knew her daughter would never be asked out on a, on a date. And, and it became really difficult. And it says this, I'll just read it. One day when the confusion seemed unbearable, Deborah came across an essay entitled Welcome to Holland by Emily Pearl Kingsley. It didn't solve all the tensions of disappointment for Deborah, and it won't for you, but it's a brilliant lens to look through for any disappointment you're facing. Kingsley writes, and this is what I I just, I thought this was brilliant. I'm often asked to describe the experience of raising a child with a disability and to try to help people who have not shared that unique experience to understand it, to imagine how it would feel. It's like this. When you're going to have a baby, It's like planning a fabulous holiday to Italy. You buy a bunch of guidebooks and make your wonderful plans. The Colosseum, the Michelangelo, David, the gondolas in Venice. You may learn some handy phrases in Italian. It's all very exciting. After months of eager expectation, the day finally arrives. You pack your bags and off you go. Several hours later, the plane lands. The flight attendant comes in and says, welcome to Holland. Holland, you say? What do you mean, Holland? I signed up for Italy. I'm supposed to be in Italy. All my life I've dreamed of going to Italy. But there's been a change in the flight plan. 
They've landed in Holland and there you must stay. The important thing is that they haven't taken you to a horrible, disgusting, filthy place full of pestilence, famine and disease. It's just a different place. So you must go out and buy new guidebooks and you must learn a whole new language and you will meet a whole new group of people you would never have met. It's just a different place. A slower pace than Italy, less flashy than Italy. But after you've been there for a while and you catch your breath, you look around and you begin to notice that Holland has windmills and Holland has tulips. Holland even has Rembrandts. But everyone you know is busy coming and going from Italy and they're all bragging about what a wonderful time they had there. And for the rest of your life, you will say, yes, that's where I'm supposed to go. That's what I planned. And the pain of that will never, ever go away because the loss of that dream is a very significant loss. But if you spend your life mourning the fact that you didn't get to Italy, you may never be free to enjoy the very special and the very lovely things about Holland. And then they finished by saying this. I thought that was beautiful. Don't let what you expected keep you from what God wants you to experience. God has plans for you that you know nothing about right now. That means that he may take you down paths that seem to lead to nowhere. Believing God means assuming that he is always working, even when our faith and prayers and love don't seem to be working. Realizing this opens our hearts to accept what God has allowed in each season of our lives without being overtaken by discouragement. The more we can rest in this confidence, the wider our spiritual eyes will open to the blessings the Father has already given us. Let's pray together.